The mall hadn't been invented yet with the lease departments in there under one roof so they don't have to get in their car and drive to another location for clothing and another location for shoes or sporting goods or whatever. So it's all in one loaf. It hadn't really been done anywhere before. Welcome to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. I'm Edward Krigsman. Last time, we enjoyed a conversation with Dick Coolin, who shared stories of growing up in Seattle in the 1950s and 60s, surrounded by jazz. Well, today we'll continue an exploration of the Pacific Northwest post-war era, and our theme music is the sound of a carousel at the B&I Circus Store in Lakewood, Washington. Founded in 1946 by two wounded World War II veterans, Earl Irwin and Leo Bradshaw, as the B&I Sales Company, the retailer peddled military surplus out of an 18-foot-wide cinder block building and later a Quonset hut. The 50s and 60s were good to the B&I, thanks to Irwin's vivid imagination, outsized personality, ingenious marketing tactics, and tireless work ethic, expanding to over 100,000 square feet of retail space and later to 350,000. The B&I pioneered an early version of the American shopping mall. The B&I's unorthodox advertising tactics, its parking lot spectacles, celebrity appearances, including Hollywood actors, Olympic athletes, and politicians, and displays of exotic animals, including elephants, seals, and chimpanzees, made this place unforgettable to its customers, and especially to children. Anchoring all of these experiences at this retail jungle was, of course, Ivan the Gorilla. Our guest today grew up inside the BNI. He's the son of its founder, Earl Irwin. And after his dad passed away in 1973, he took over running the store in partnership with his mom. And he's joined today by Earl's nephew, who has become the BNI's archivist and founder of the Ivan Foundation. So today, we'll explore how one man's ingenuity created a place that became a Pacific Northwest landmark, one that touched the hearts and souls of thousands, a place that was memorable not because it was fancy, but because it blended the bizarre and fantastical into a setting in which everyone was welcome. And we'll also hear the original voice of Earl Irwin, thanks to recently discovered archival promotional audio. And today we've also invited the BNI's past customers and employees, people who whittled away countless hours there as children, to share their stories. Let's drive around. So let's welcome our guest today, Ron Irwin, son of BNI founder Earl Irwin, together with Earl Bogart, Ron's nephew. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So great to have you here. So, Ron, if you can just share your connection to the BNI. Well, I kind of grew up in it. My dad obviously started it and founded it. Uh, I started when I was five years old pushing a broom. And uh, worked my way up to the warehouse and then uh, sporting goods. And uh, then my dad died and uh, I ran the store right up till uh, we sold it. And so can you share any memories or anything that you learned from your father about the earliest growth of the store, how it kind of got rolling? Well, he was a, uh, he had nervous energy. If you knew him, he'd always have a coins in his hand. He'd be rolling them from one hand to the other. He just always had this nervous energy. He just had to, had to be doing something. And his mind was just going all the time. He was just interesting in his imagination and his creativity. Uh, 
I was working in sporting goods one time, and I had these shoes that uh, I think they were Converse shoes, tennis shoes, and I bought these shoes and uh, hundreds of them. And they were really at a cheap price. And I had them all lined up like tin soldiers, you know, like you'd see somewhere like the Bon Marche. And I had this sign. We had a sign painting department at the store. And this beautiful, you know, I think it was six ninety five or something like that. My dad walks by and looks at it and uh, says, how many of those you sold? And I says, well, none yet. And, uh, you know, somebody would look at it. I'd put it back in this tin soldier look. And so uh, he says, I'll show you what merchandising is. And he goes over and he picks up all the shoes and throws them up in the air and just jumbles them all up. Then he goes over and gets a, a box that was there. And he writes this thing and he says, uh, $6.95. And he threw it on the top of this thing, on, on this big mound of just shoes. <laughs> every one of them were sold in about three days, sold every one of them. And it was just little things like that that I don't know where he would have come up with that to have, have known that just intrinsically looking at it and say, you're looking at this all wrong. And he did that on everything. And he, he just, his imagination never stopped. I also read that when he left the army, he had like 36 bucks in his pocket. You know, he came with nothing. What do you think motivated him? Well, he was born in the Ozarks in Missouri, and he was dirt poor. Went to, uh, went to the war and got out, knew what poor was, knew he never wanted to be poor. So he worked, he worked hard, and he had a lot of energy, tons of energy, and a mind uh, that was very creative. And he didn't waste it. He worked it, and uh, he took advantage of everything he could have. And uh, he just built everything. He'd still be building, he'd own the world if he was still alive. How do you think he got the idea to start a retail store? Well, it was Army Surplus, and uh, they worked in the logistics center, which sold Army Surplus, him and Leo Bradshaw. And there was a lot of money to be made in, in army surplus back then. I mean, you could buy stuff for pennies in the dollar and sell it for hundreds and hundreds of dollars. So they started it on South Tacoma Way, little 30 by 15 cinder block building, and it just kept growing after that and growing. Do we know anything about Leo, his uh, partner that started? Well, he was a real conservative person. He was an architect, is what he later turned out to be. And, and he didn't have the vision. He didn't have the background. He just didn't understand anything that my father was doing. And so they were always clashing on ideas. And so my dad says, we got to end this. And you buy me out or I'll buy you out. And he didn't want anything to do with it. So he sold, moved to Spokane, and the uh, rest is history. I'm Greg Warnick. I grew up in Furcrest in the 70s. I had three siblings and uh, we all went to the BNI. And we went often to buy shirts or socks or soil or whatever it was that we needed. I mean, it was kind of the, a working class mall. You know, I remember like there was a diner inside and I kind of remember eating cottage cheese with sliced pear and it was the best thing and they put pepper on it and I still to this day kind of you know 
once in a while, I'll buy some cottage cheese and sliced pears and put pepper on it. And it brings me back to this very safe, kind of wondrous place. So when was the shift away from military surplus into other things? Well, the military surplus started to dry up after the war. And uh, it was in the early 50s. And that's when he got different distributors of shoes and uh, clothing and a couple other departments that had several stores. They had 50 stores, some of these, and they asked if they wanted a retail store. So a lot of the departments that we had and all the way through were leased out departments. So uh, we had some of the departments in there, but a lot of the ones that had, you know, really made a, little, a lot of impact were leased departments at the time. And was there any competition at the time? Was there any, anyone else doing this no. in the 50s? No, there wasn't any malls. The, the mall hadn't been invented yet. And I think uh, somebody may have even looked at the store and the way they did it with the lease departments in there under one roof so they don't have to get in their car and drive uh, to another location for clothing and another location for shoes or sporting goods or whatever. So it's all in one loaf. I, it hadn't really been done anywhere before. And so the thing that we did differently uh, that put us on the map more than a lot of them do is that we had an advertising budget, 4% for everybody. And that put us in a different class because we could get our message out. And, and these malls don't do that today. You'll get Bon Marche doing an ad. You'll get Pennies doing an ad. But you don't get the mall itself doing an ad. And I think that's really hurting them what they've done. I don't think the people are coming in. They're not telling their story the way they should be telling it. And also they don't have a gorilla. And they don't have a gorilla. <laughs> You're right. But these events, right, that these sorts of spectacular events don't really happen in shopping malls. Entertainment retailing. That's yeah. what it is. He yeah. started that. And the advertising model was like a cooperative model where people had to contribute. Yes. A certain, can you explain that, why that was successful and what well, it was? Well, a lot of the reasons that a lot of these small companies go out of business, they don't advertise, so nobody knows it. So what my father did is that he had, uh, he had, 12%, he had a 12% lease, and 4% was advertising, 8% was rent. So we supplied the advertising department, and they signed up, they had to pay advertising. And so we had, you know, weekly ads, we had TV ads, we had radio ads, and everybody was kicking in to pay for it. So that made us have the ability to get to a lot of people on a regular basis, was the way we formed our leases back then. My name is Lori DeVore, and I would like to share a few memories from my experience at the BNI. I had never heard of it until 1972 when my best friend asked if I would like to go with her family to see Ivan the Gorilla into this big shopping mall. My memory of walking into the store was the car was parked in this huge parking lot and we walked in and it was amazing, an amazing experience. I remember a popcorn machine and uh, we all got a bag and walked through this huge store with a plethora of just about anything you could imagine for sale. So much color, the arcade, there were places where you can get something to drink, 
clothing, shoes, games, everything you could imagine was at the BNI. How did the circus theme become wrapped up into the arc of the BNI, their, their message? Well, a real quirky thing that my dad had was parking. And um, he would buy the property next door and he'd tear the, it was a house, tore it down, put parking in. And he'd buy the piece of property behind it, tear it down, put parking. He, he was obsessed with parking. And then when uh, a circus came to town, they were looking for the largest parking lot. He had the largest parking lot in the county. So they, they ended up coming there and people came from 20 miles away. The up and down South Tacoma Way was, was a mile of cars parked on both sides. And so he quickly saw that every child that walked in there had one thing in common. They had a parent with them. And so he started to really go after the kids. He went after them with the animals. He went after them with the toys. A lot of the whole store was geared towards the children with the idea that children brings the parents in. And then they see good ideas, they're good values, and they come back. So, And when did the carousel get put into there? Do you recall? Oh, the 50s, 53, probably. 53, uh-huh. 54, somewhere in there. Uh-huh. That's brilliant. I mean, who? no one had probably put a carousel inside a store. You would need to go out to a amusement park or a circus. Yes, exactly. So. Friends, the merry-go-round will be back in operation very shortly. Meanwhile, those of you who would like to ride the mechanical kitty rides will find them in operation in the large big top outside our main door. Earl, any insights? Any nuggets? Any fun stories? You know, as a kid growing up, it was an amazing place to go. I mean, you know, my sisters and I had two great grandmothers. Uh, we were we were very lucky in that regard. Um one grandmother was very religious <laughs> and, you know, and then the other grandmother owned this, this fantasy land, if you want to call it that. And, and, um, it, it was a pretty cool experience going to work with her and to be able to just kind of have a little bit of the run of the place and to, and then I think one of the, the favorite, one of my favorite places in the store itself besides, you know, actually interacting with Ivan, but um, is that, uh, you know, the wall of history with all of the family photos, you know, because all of these things happened before I was even born. Uh, All of these, you know, fantastic stories that Ron has been talking about, I I never had those kind of memories. But it was kind of inspiring to me and, and kind of, you know, awesome in a way, you know, to, to look at this and to see, you know, your mom and your uncle kind of grow up through the years and all the different experiences that they had. And um, even though these, these photos were black and white, they were probably filled with so much color to me as a kid. In our new store, friends, you'll find many new and exciting surprises. Not only will we have more bargain merchandise at everyday low, low prices, but we will have something brand new and something very unusual to this part of the country. An all-new Jungle Land pet shop featuring sea life and jungle life housed in the same section of the store. Upon entering the pet shop, you will find many new and unusual animal oddities and attractions. So can you tell the story a little bit about the circus and the animals couldn't go to Canada? Yeah, there was three animals that couldn't go to Canada. 
And so they came back down to dad and said, would you mind holding these for about three weeks while we do our Canadian tour? And he said, yeah. And um, kids came from all over to see a llama and to see this cat, you know, it might have been a lion. And people came from all over. And then he, my, when they got back, my dad asked, well, can we buy these? And do you have anything else you want to sell? And uh, they said, well, yeah. And uh, so we sold, uh, they bought and sold stuff from that circus. And then my dad started getting into it. And he'd get, he'd go down to California, he'd go to zoos. And when we, my father and I would go on vacation it was like we'd go down to San Diego, we'd end up in the San Diego Zoo, and we'd be buying and selling and trading and trading recipes and different ideas to do it. We went to eight or nine places, and every time we ended up in a zoo. And it was always, you know, he was he he did the best he could for the animals. Uh-huh. Pierce County actually became known for llama farming. Yeah, and it, it was, was the number one the place in the country for llamas, and it all started right there. And then elephants also became part of the mix. Yeah. Uh, we got Sammy, and I, I can't remember if that was one of the animals that uh, we got from that circus or not. I'm not sure, but we got him around that time, uh, and he grew up full grown. And you know, you, you, we didn't have any place to hold a full grown uh, elephant, so uh, we sold him to the Hawaii Zoo. And the zoo in Hawaii has it, uh, Honolulu Zoo. But uh, like I was saying, we couldn't really, how do, you, how do you control an elephant as it's growing up? And one day it broke out of its pen and, uh, that we had, and it started going around in the uh, paint department, smashing the paint, and then sucking it up in his trunk and shooting it all over the store. <laughs> he went through our houseware department that had all this glassware and knocked everything over. And it wasn't setting any alarms off, so nobody knew what was going on, you know, because he wasn't going outside. We got there in the morning, everything was just, just destroyed. And uh, he'd just been wandering around the store, an elephant wandering around the store, just uh, having fun, knocking things over. Hi, my name is Kay Porter, and I lived in Tacoma, Washington from birth until I married at the age of 22. Well, it was an awesome experience. Ivan the gorilla was always the most fascinating thing that we could ever see out there, all the different foods and the little shops. And it was such a fun experience. I remember uh, my mom asked me and my sister up and we'd go to the BNI and spend hours out there just walking around, looking at Ivan. The BNI was the place to go where you could just have so much fun. And then there were these parking lot spectacles, hydroplanes, ice-breaking contests, where a Fort Lewis soldier won 500 silver dollars for guessing the day, hour, and minute that a quarter million pounds of ice would melt. Yeah. It took took about four months, and um, they'd they'd guess on it, and it was in the front of the store, and it was a massive stack of ice. So it took months for it to... And uh, everybody would come in, and they'd write the guess down. They could go right up to the very end of it, and keep writing their guests down. And there was also like where kids would, they would hide coins in sawdust or wood chips and they would have to come in and find them. Yeah. Oh yeah. Ice cream eating contest, dog contest goes on. And then there was a lot with the Olympics. It looks like in the eighties with Olympic torches. Mm -hmm. Any recollections? Well, the torch went in front of the store 
and people paid up to five, six hundred dollars to to run it for one mile. And the transfer from one person to the other was right in front of the store. And so we they kind of paused and took a bunch of pictures and you know, off he ran down the street. that I know is familiar to all Tacomans and uh, all the folks in the Pacific Northwest, Bert Thomas. I made his acquaintance just a few moments ago, and I personally am very gratified to have seen him, talked with him just a moment, and out he is. We followed all of his swimming attempts, and finally when he did conquer the Straits of Juan de Fuca, as everyone knew he would do, Bert, just hi and a good evening. Hi, Bill. How are you? Well, I'll tell you, I'm... What I read somewhere was that every time a celebrity made an appearance at one of Irwin's ingenious and bizarre promotional events, that traffic on South Tacoma Way stopped for miles in both directions. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, And Bert Thomas was one of the first. So tell us about Bert Thomas and your father's relationship with him. I'm not really sure where the the relationship started between him and Bert Thomas, but uh, they became pretty close friends. And I can remember when he did that swim from Juan de Fuca, I was on the boat watching him, and I couldn't believe he was doing what he was doing. It was just, you know, you, you go back under the cover and you come back out hours later and he's still swimming. And, uh, and so a lot of people came down to do that. But I think one of the first big ones that he did was when Cisco Kidd came to town. Here's O. Henry's famous Robin Hood of the Old West, the Cisco Kidd. That's the first time a Hollywood star had ever gone outside of Hollywood to appear at anything like a shopping center or an opening of something that had never been heard of before. And that's one of the ones that stopped uh, the traffic on South Tacoma Way for miles in each direction. So Earl, you had found that audio somewhere. Where, where, I mean, it's remarkable. When my grandma passed away, I mean, uh, just kind of uncovered a lot of the stuff that she had and she just had tucked away into different little areas. And um, then there was a store in close to my, you know, our house in, in Lakewood. And and uh, they specialize in kind of doing prints and things. But then another thing is, is uh, retrieving archival footage. And so I kind of brought all these these reels to them. And I'm like, what's on these things? (laughs) And uh, they kind of sent it away to a specialist and kind of put everything onto audio CDs and um, just started listening to them. And so when I had first heard that, like some years ago, it was, you know, it was a little interesting to me because I had never heard his voice before. And, you know, this is a person that was such an important part of my life that I've never met. So it was, it was quite interesting to actually hear his voice for the very first time. Anything else come to mind for you hearing your dad's voice? I haven't heard his voice in 30 years. That's uh, good. We try, we definitely do try every year, ladies and gentlemen, to keep our prices lower than anyone else's, which is another reason why more people buy at the B&I every year than at any other store in the world. That's why the B&I is known as the world. I had read about Dwight D. Eisenhower was potentially come to the store or here. Dad well, was trying. potentially. What's, what's this, any memories of that? He drove down Highway 99, which was I-5 at the time. That was 
proceeded I five by twenty years. And anyway, he drove down there, and and um, my dad took a picture of him, some other location, and cut it off and put it in front of the store, as if he was stopped at the store, and he sent that into the News Tribune, and they had that as headlines. But he never stopped. He drove by. But he he didn't pull over in the middle of the road and stop and wave. So Joe Lewis and Max Baer, the boxer, a lot of this photographs show like signing ceremonies where he's there with these different celebrities signing autographs. Oh, yeah. We um, had a lot of Seahawk players and a lot of uh, baseball players and a lot of basketball players. We had Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, too, at the time, was really a hot number on Who was Sheena? She, well, she was a hot-looking blonde that had a horse that <laughs> was on some national TV show. <laughs> she showed up. Yeah, she was there, signed autographs for hours and hours and hours. So we have to think that this was the 50s and 60s. Seattle wasn't really uh, very much on the map for the U.S. and Hollywood. A lot of these people, I'm sure, lived out of the area, too. Oh, they all did, yeah. None of them were other than sports figures. But all the celebrities we got were all out of Hollywood, mostly. Hello, my name is Kristen, and I wanted to share my favorite memory of the BNI. I just remember wanting to go so bad, I felt like I was getting ready to go to an amusement park. And I remember when my parents took me, just the pure excitement that I felt of going, and I just felt like I was somebody special, some superstar, that I got to go to the BNI to see Ivan, the gorilla, but it was just this pure excitement and just being a part of that community and just being a part of the fun um, and then of course becoming a teenager and middle schooler the most present thing to do was get a picture taken at the bni if you did not have a picture taken at the bni you were just not cool so i read that an advertisement in the store because you can go to the bni and actually see all a lot of these things there was an ad that said, watch this beautiful horse go on a shopping spree through the BNI alone. Yeah, that was a, it, it, there was a show, a TV show with Gypsy the Flying Horse or something. I don't know what it was. And it was a real popular show. And so we had the horse come up and walk through the store and ate a hot dog, I think. I don't know what it did. <laughs> Hi, gang. You're just in time for another meeting in King's Clubhouse with Stan Borson and all the gang. Today we've got some dandy cartoons. It's and then someone named Stan Borison who was the king of Scandinavian humor? Well, Stan Borson, um, Brakeman Bill, there was three or four of them out of Seattle that had uh, afternoon shows, and we'd have them down all the time. And they had big shows. I mean, these were big shows for the kids, and uh, so we'd have them down there maybe once every two months. We'd have one of them. There was four of them that, uh, that had... Uh, afternoon shows for the kids. And, and how effective were these sorts of events at attracting oh, kids? Oh, it drew kids. Yeah, they loved to see them. They bring a lot of kids, hundreds and hundreds of kids every time we, they'd, they'd show up. And with that came the parents. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I think you are. You've been to Disneyland, you've been here, you've been there. You saw a lot of things unusual. But in this new construction, we're going out to bring to you something that has never been done in the history of this world. That's why no one can succeed in duplicating BMI. It cannot be done. 
I do remember this one event, though, that I probably was like early teens. And um, my grandmother purchased a groundhog. <laughs> and so they decided to have this huge Groundhog Day promotion. And, you know, and I remember being outside in the crowd and they drove this groundhog up in a limousine. <laughs> you know, it took the groundhog out to see if he could see his shadow. <laughs> and and um, it, it was just, I don't know, it was just a, it, it, uh, the, the marketing was just off the charts, especially for Groundhog Day. <laughs> I wanted to ask about your mom because she's also part of the story. Yes. Uh, when my dad died, she became president of the company. And so she ran the company after that. And she was very good, very strict, even more so than my father. Uh, my father would let a lot of things slide and you couldn't get anything by her. She was uh, pretty tough and she did a very good job. And then how old were you when your dad passed, roughly? I was about 25, I guess. Okay, so when he died, that must have been, because he was the key man, really, in the whole operation, right, as the sort of the genius behind it. So what happened at that time, and how did you and your mom and the other team members, the employees, how did you face his death? Well, it he had built it up, and he had got it going and rolling in a direction. And uh, once that ball started to go in that direction, you just had to maintain it. You know, we did the same things. We brought a lot of uh, personalities in. We had a lot of sales. We did a lot of goofy things. We had uh, all sorts of stuff going on, just keeping up with what he did. And our, our sales uh, in the 80s and 90s just exploded. Uh, we're doing a lot of business there. And then I would imagine also for your father that it, he had not just his own kind of brilliance, but also relationships with other people. We mentioned, we talked about politicians and celebrities and athletes, right? Th these were personal relationships, Bert Thomas being a great example, yeah. right? Where Bert says, gosh, you've had every confidence in me. Yeah, he had a lot of connections in a lot of different places. A lot of people in business and a lot of politicians. He knew every politician and uh, they all knew him. And it was a good old days are kind of over now. <laughs> Do you recall his funeral? Oh, yeah. 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 He uh, died of lung cancer. He went to um, Germany. Uh, I went with him uh, for a vitamin A treatment that wasn't allowed here. And um, I was there for a month and a half. And then my mother came over and uh, she was there for two weeks and he, he died. It's kind of odd because when I was there, he was... He was uh, in good health. He, we were walking every day. We were going outside, seeing different things. And uh, and then to have it, it wasn't even two weeks. It was like 10 days later, I got a phone call and he died. It, uh, it came on very quickly. And then was his funeral, was it a family fair? Or I, I just wonder about all these people that he had, no, you know, these spectacles so, that he was. <clears throat> no, was it, it was open to the public. And there was a lot of people. Yeah. Closed the store down. All the, most of the employees came.
when he was alive, then how did he relate to the employees as well? Because I've noticed, again, in the store, there's these pictures of these big picnics, you know, and these sheets where they honor all the employees. So it seems like he was very engaged with his employees. He did. He understood that they were not just people on a time card, that these were people that uh, had families, and uh, he helped a lot of people out who were strapped for something or medical problems. He helped a lot of those people out. And we had a lot of different parties like those old picnics we had just for the employees. And it was a different time. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's not like it is now. It's too impersonal now. People don't do that. But he did back then. And then how did that extend to his relationships directly with customers? Well, he'd walk down the aisles of the store and he'd stop and talk to people. He'd, everybody knew who he was. You know, his picture, he put his picture everywhere. And everybody knew who he was, so, you know, people come up and talk to him, and he'd love to talk to people. And so he had this real one-on-one with, you know, half the people in the county, Uh, and uh, he did it right. My name is Tawa Krigsman, and I remember the BNI vividly. Um, we were, as children, taken there a lot by our parents. And the very first time I went there, I remember going to see Ivan the gorilla, and I just remember thinking how big and scary he was. I was absolutely terrified of him because he would bang on the glass, and it was kind of um, scary. So then. Um, after that, my mom would take us over where all the shops were, and I just felt like I was in my own personal playground because they were all just so different. All kinds of um, diverse cultures were selling their goods there, and you just and all these smells of food, and just it was a great place to hang out, even if you were five or six years old or even 50. And then how did things shift when you became, you know, essentially business partners with your mom? Well, it, it changed because he was such an intricate part of it. And when you lose that thing, you lose, uh, you lose part of the personality of the store. And that was hard to replace. And neither one of us could replace that personality that was lost, that dynamic that uh, was there. But we did a good job. Sales skyrocketed and everything. Uh, we upgraded everything. It wasn't just the working man stuff. We upgraded everything. So it was more more accessible to more people at different income levels. And we did very good. And uh, so, you know, everything was doing well. And then the whole Ivan thing at the very end of it, uh, when Michael Jackson got involved, that was a whole nightmare. Uh, We were trying to move Ivan with Michael Jackson and uh, pickets all the time outside. Times changed, and uh, there was a lot of pressure to move Ivan to a zoo. And this was in the 90s? Yeah, this is in the 90s, early 90s on. And uh, I tried everywhere. I went to the SSPA, which is Species Survival Program for Gorillas, uh, two different times. Talked to every, almost every zoo in the country. And uh, now Ivan was in his mid-30s, and, and he was a sedentary gorilla. And nobody wanted them. They had a lot of, they wanted females. They didn't want any more males. So. And what's the lifespan of a gorilla? Uh, Ivan lived to 50. And that was one of the longer ones. I mean, that's, that's above average, far above average. So Michael Jackson got involved. And um, he made an offer. And uh, 
he lives in Santa Barbara County. They're extremely liberal down there. And after two years of uh, trying to get a permit to build this wonderful outdoor compound, uh, he finally gave up and said, I can't get it. They won't allow me to get a building permit for it. You know, and it dragged on for years and I got pickets going on and bomb threats and death threats and all that stuff. And, and uh, you know, finally Atlanta Zoo stepped up. I'd called them several times and they didn't want them. And finally they, uh, they took them because of Michael Jackson. You know, everybody wanted him once Michael Jackson got involved. And why did Michael Jackson want Ivan so badly? Um, you'd have to ask him. Okay. But it, he just took a, a, a he, he was very interested in him uh, and in the plight of Ivan. You know, it's, he didn't have it as bad as most gorillas in captivity today. Uh, he had a great compound. He had people that uh, took care of him. Uh, the biggest complaint we had about Ivan was, where is he? He'd go back. He had three rooms he could go to that door, the main compound, and or he could go in his back trailer where he would do finger painting with uh, the girls and play games, and we'd play tug-of-war. And he cheats. Ivan cheats, by the way. <laughs> he'd press your toe. You got your foot up against the bar, and he'd grab your toe with his finger. And you, you either let go or he's going to break your toe off, you know. He's just a kid. That's all he was. He didn't understand what he was in there for. He's just a kid. Hello, this is Michael Klebeck. Recollections of the B&I store. My mom used to like to go to B&I because the tennis shoes for the kids, because, you know, there's so many kids in the family. Um, they were really inexpensive, so she liked that. And one time, my one of my brothers got lost in the store and he was crying and they had he had to go to an employee who who uh went over the pa system and said you know there's this little boy who's lost and then my my older brother who was supposed to be watching him uh found him so that was uh luckily that was a, a good ending um definitely the popcorn and i remember the the long corridors being little it seemed like they were really long and they were kind of sloped uh and then the mechanical rides where you'd put in uh probably a nickel or maybe 10 cents to do a ride and definitely a circus type atmosphere and so really from being kind of coming up from california and and having that sort of atmosphere that was blending the circus and the little rides and really, you know, kid-friendly atmosphere was great. And and no one, of course, would, would ever forget the gorilla. So I ask our guests to bring in an item that they care about. What do you guys have here? I got a handprint of Ivan. So tell us about it. When he was getting his teeth done, he he had bad teeth. Uh, the gals bless their soul, but they'd give him a lot of Coca-Cola. He loved Coke, and, and it rotted his teeth, and he was always having teeth problems. So we had to put him down one time a year for the USDA needed to, you know, do, uh, take all of his vital signs and see everything, uh, how he's doing. And he was always in the top 5% of the country of gorillas in this country. 
as health-wise. So we were doing something right. Why did the USDA have to get involved? Because he had, we had a zoo license, and you have to inspect the animals every year. And um, when we were having his teeth worked on, I had one arm, and uh, a guy in the sporting goods had the other arm trying to hold him down. And a gal from the promotion, Pat Block, she put his hand into plaster Paris and pushed it down while he is out. And um, while he was getting his teeth worked on, he woke up one time. And uh, he, the dentist was right here, and Ivan was right there, and Ivan just looks at him, and we got this bar in his mouth wrapped in uh, in, in cotton and, and gauze and a whole lot of uh, tape, a lot of tape, and to keep his mouth open. And uh, that scared the heck out of our dentist. <laughs> but we got that. That's the original cast wow. right there. Well, we actually had a footprint too. And uh, I had that. And uh, somebody had broken into my house and and that was one of the things they took. And they most likely, and it was in this beautiful frame and it was mo- they most likely took it for the frame. And I hope that whoever took it actually cherishes that footprint knowing that what it is but i fear that it was probably just discarded just so somebody could take the frame but um who knows i mean it's out there somewhere well we asked our guests to share a place that matters in the pacific northwest to them I think probably one of my favorite places in the Pacific Northwest, I think, is San Juan Island, Friday Harbor. That's a pretty cool place, and that's very unique in this area. So, Anything come to mind? Probably the B&I. And why? I grew up there. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for being our guest today. Sure. It was a lot thank of fun. Thank you. Join us next time for a journey to the bottom of the sea. Our guests will be Matt McCauley, president of the Northwest Shipwreck Alliance, together with Sarah Haberstroh, manager of underwater operations for Rockfish Incorporated. They made headlines recently for discovering the Pacific Northwest's most significant shipwreck, the SS Pacific, which sunk off the Washington coast near Cape Flattery in 1875. Transporting as many as 500 people including miners carrying gold from Canada. The disaster left only two survivors. To hear their stories, as well as those of the less fortunate passengers, as told by the team that just located their paddleboard steamer buried beneath the graveyard of the Pacific, tune into our next episode. Thank you for joining us today. Audio engineering and sound design by Daniel Gunther. Photography by Brandon Williams. Administrative support from Mary Barbour theme music written by Toma Nakayama and performed by Grand Hallway, with additional music written by Andrew Weathers, as well as by Ryan Love and performed by Fox Hunt. We record on Coast Salish land at the Jack Straw Cultural Center in Seattle's University District. I'm Edward Krigsman, and you've been listening to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review or subscribe to us. And if you know of a place in the Pacific Northwest that matters to you, please tell us about it. We'd love to share your stories.